Please open your Bibles to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13. Children are dismissed for Children's Church. I'm going to read our text this morning. Romans 13, 11 to 14. Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Lord God, it's our desire that you would help us to see and to desire and to put on your Son. So that when others look at us, they would see your son, that we would put on the armor of light, that we would walk in light and not in darkness. So Lord, as we study this passage, I just pray that you would help us to understand how to do that and why to do that, that you would be with us throughout the week doing that, that we would become more like your son, that our hope in his return would grow with greater and greater expectancy. In Jesus' name, amen. We're closing out Romans 13 this week, but we've got to remember where in the book we are. In the first eight chapters, Paul has masterfully unpacked the gospel, explaining our need, the remedy, and then the effects of the remedy. And then in chapters 9 to 11, he deals with the question of Israel. And then starting in chapter 12, and if you'll turn back to Romans 12... I think the first two verses we've said serve as kind of the overarching theme of this entire section. Remember, the first 11 chapters of Romans are the indicatives. They're the statements of fact, what has happened. And then starting in chapter 12, we get the imperatives, or how to live. Or another way of thinking about it, chapter 1 to 11, orthodoxy. Chapters 12 to 16, orthopraxy. How do we live what we've just read? And that relationship's important because if you skip to the do, you could very quickly establish a checklist, a works righteousness, legalism. The, the doing has got to flow out of the truth. So in chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, we read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, which refers to the previous 11 chapters. So based on what Paul has just said, Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so as Paul instructs us how to live out the gospel, how to live in keeping with the gospel, we see off the bat that there's two ways of thinking. There's two spheres that we can operate in. There's the world's way of thinking, the world's way of operating, the world's sphere. We're to not be molded into that image, but rather we are to be transformed by the renewing of our minds into the image of his son. So these are the two polarities. And so we've gone through and we see how we should, with these renewed minds, with these justified gospel lives, how we should relate to the church and the body and using our gifts. And then in the second half of chapter 12, we deal with, well, what about the world and what about our enemies? And we're to love them as well. And then in chapter 13, we're to even submit and to love the government. And then last week, we saw Paul start to tie it all together, talking about the primacy of love. Why should we be loving the church? Why should we be loving the world? Why should we be loving our enemies? Why should we even be loving our governments? Because love is the fulfillment of the law. And the justified, born-again person should be 
genuinely, spontaneously overflowing in love. It's God's nature to love, and we are to be godly. This week, Paul is going to give us a second reason why we should do these things. So the reason one from last week is because love is the centrality and fullness of the law. But if we look at our passage this week, we see that he says besides this, or in addition to this, here's another reason why you should do everything in chapter 12 to 13 so far. And that is our future hope, our eschatological hope. So the first reason from last week, because love is the fullness of the law. If we can become a more and more loving people, we're to be a people who are living out the law, not by checklists, but genuinely with a transformed heart. And this week, he's going to give us another great motivation, a motivation for holiness, a motivation for love, which is Jesus is coming back soon. I mean, amen? Jesus is coming back soon, and that's, that's what he puts forward for us. So that's, that's the context of this, is another powerful motivation for us to love, love the church, love the world, love our enemies, love the state, to love as Christians, as Christ loved us. And so we've got to start by remembering our future hope. We've got to start by remembering our future hope. Notice that Paul starts off the same pattern. He's going to give us information, and then he's going to move to application, the indicatives, the imperatives. And he starts off actually saying, these are things we should already know. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. These are things Paul says we should already know. And the danger is there's plenty of things that you and I know that if we don't actively keep in the forefront of our minds, we can just tend to forget. I was just talking to someone earlier this week and commenting that most of what I need to know, I already know. I just need to be reminded of it. I mean, how often is the issue of sin in your life an issue of, I didn't know that was wrong? Perhaps sometimes that's the case, but isn't it more often we just forget? We just forget. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the um, German theologian who was part of the uh, resistance to the Nazi efforts, said, the power of sin most often in God's children is not the power to raise their hand at God, but just the power to forget, just to be distracted, just to lose focus. And so Paul here is reminding us of what we should know, but at the same time, we probably need the reminding. We probably need the reminding. In fact, the return of Jesus is, is something that doesn't show up as much in the church culture these days. One of the reasons the songs were picked this morning is it's pretty regular in, in hymns of previous generation for the return of Christ to be prevent, prevalent. Sorry. Um, like, think of the last verse of On Christ the Solid Rock I Stand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless, to stand before the throne. Or how great thou art. When Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart. Then I shall bow in humble adoration and there proclaim, my God, how great thou art. That, 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 this is a theme which I think probably is in decline in the church and so I think it's timely and helpful for us to be reminded of it. So what are these things that Paul says we should already know, but we need to be reminded of? Well, we need to be reminded of the time. We need to be reminded of the time, and the time is for us to wake up. The time has come to wake up. You see that in verse 11. Besides this, you know the time. The hour has come for you to wake from sleep. So... What time is he talking about? We live in the last days. And it may be strange to think of that now 2,000 years since the close of the New Testament. But we live in the last days. And the New Testament is adamant on that fact. And we live in a strange time period. After the cross, after the fatal blow was done to the devil, after the victory was announced purchased, and yet before the king comes to claim his kingdom, before the Lord returns to subdue his enemies, 
to make them his footstool, to, to put all rebellion at an end. And so we live in this strange time period after the decisive battle, after the act that secured and guaranteed victory, and yet before the consummation and ultimate fulfillment of that victory. We live in this strange time. And, and it's important for us to grasp that. We live in the final days. God's redemptive plan has one more step in his salvation for his people, and that is the return of Jesus to collect his people and to judge the earth. And, and these are the days we live in. Probably the closest analogy I can think of is, is after World War II. I'm sure many of you know that in summer of 1945, um, Japanese surrendered, Germany surrendered, but that wasn't when the fighting stopped. Um, in the islands of the Philippines, there were Japanese holdouts that continued skirmishes and fighting. Well, actually, the, the last um, reported surrender was of Officer Hiro Onada um, in the Longbong Islands in the Philippines, and he surrendered on March 1974. <laughs> um, and some of this was because of a lack of communication. Other Japanese troops simply didn't believe the reports, and others just didn't care. But, for instance, um, Captain Sake Oba led his company of 46 men in guerrilla actions against the U.S. all the way up until December of 1945. But here's the picture I want you to think of. Those soldiers who fought so valiantly in World War II, going through sleepless nights, long, difficult times, not knowing if their side would be victorious, are gonna fight a little differently, are gonna have a slightly different attitude this side of D-Day, this side of the surrender of Japan. So there's still a little fighting to do in the Philippines, but those soldiers are gonna fight a little differently with a greater zeal and excitement because they know that their side has won. And can you imagine making it through that campaign as a soldier to know that you've won and suddenly to become disinterested. To suddenly, you know, Captain, I'm kind of reading this romance novel. Can, can we get to this later? It's unthinkable. After you've gone through the most difficult part, after victory has been announced and is guaranteed and ensured, that you would suddenly lose focus. And yet, Paul is concerned that's the very thing we're going to do. He's afraid that after the decisive blow at Calvary was given, after the devil received a mortal wound and he's now in his death throes, after the guarantee of the return of our Lord, after the provision of the Holy Spirit and God's word and the building of his church, with all of this, which the gates of hell will not stand against, Paul's concerned that we might start to get distracted, start to get drowsy, start to fall asleep. The uh, Encyclopedia Britannica defines sleep as a state of inactivity with a loss of consciousness and a decrease in responsiveness to events taking place. And that's the danger, isn't it? Especially in a country where there's not been much persecution, we've got lots of freedom and liberty, it's easy to live a nice, comfortable Christian life. See, you, know, you first get saved and you're zealous and you're excited and you grow and you learn things and you read your Bible. I, mean, I remember when I first got saved in my, in my early 20s, I was at every function the church had. I was even at the little prayer meeting on Thursday night with like four other people. You know, I, was the, I tried showing up to the woman's Bible study. That, that didn't work out so well. Um, no, I didn't know anybody. I just wanted to be, I knew I wanted to be with the people of God. I knew that I wanted to learn more of God's word. And then you sort of start to plane off, right? There's this zeal that starts off, and then you get comfortable, and you know some things. You know, big, obvious sin is kind of out of your life for the most part, and life starts to come up with other interesting things. You know, and then you, you get start a family, you get married, you have kids, and now there's all sorts of things. Not bad things. And the centrality of Christ and his return just starts to move further back in our vision, a little fuzzier, a little hazier, and just like when you're driving down the highway and the heat off of the highway comes up and warps the things behind it, when the things of this world are right up front of our face 
and God's way back there in the distance, it can start to look like a mirage. It can start to shimmer and just fade out. We go to sleep. We get tired. We get drowsy. And our Christian life is sort of us sitting on the couch after a big meal, half awake, watching TV. And that's where we can be. And, and Paul says, brothers, sisters, if you understood the hour we live in, if you understood what has been accomplished, if you understood what is about to happen, you would know that now is the time to wake from sleep. Now is the time to wake up. You ever, you ever found yourself driving down the highway? It's late at night. You've been driving for a long time. You start to get tired. You start to do this type of thing. And what hopefully happens is you have a moment you realize, good grief, I need to not fall asleep. And then you sort of sit up and you open the window and you turn the radio up, and, right? And you remind yourself, now is not a time for sleep. There's a lot of things at stake. And Paul's telling us the exact same thing. Of all times, now is not the time to be spiritually sleepy. Now is not the time to get comfortable. Now is not the time to get distracted. Now is the time for action. Now is the time for vigilance. Now is the time for zeal. Now is the time to wake up. Jesus warns of this danger in Matthew 16. Um, no, Matthew 24, sorry. Matthew 24. Turn to Matthew 24. Jesus warns of this danger. And he warns it in connection precisely with this, that if we aren't aware that Jesus could come back at any hour, if we are not living expectantly, then what we're going to be tempted to think is we got plenty of time. Oh, sure, I want to do great things for the Lord. Sure, I want to grow in my faith. Sure, I want to be discipled and to disciple. Just not right now. Maybe a little later. You know, I've, I've, I need to take a breather here. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll get serious sometime in the future. And in Matthew 24, Jesus warns of precisely this mentality. Look at verse 45. Matthew 24, 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if the wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with the drunkards, the master of the servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and an hour that he does not know. And he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus warns there's a danger in thinking, I got plenty of time. I mean, I'm young. I got plenty of time. And we don't have plenty of time. We don't know when the Lord may return. He, he might return in the middle of this sermon. And some of you are praying that he will. <laughs> um, he might return this evening. Or you might hit a, hit a car on your way home from church and you might have a surprise meeting with him later this afternoon. We don't know. Very few people plan on dying. For most of us, it catches us a little by surprise, I imagine. And... Yet we all know if we knew this was our last day on earth, we'd be living a little differently, wouldn't we? And so Jesus warns that if we lose sight of the fact that he will return and surprise us with his return, return soon, we might be tempted to just sort of lean back a little bit, you know, take a breather, slow down, take a break from this stuff, you know, and before you know it, be doing things we shouldn't be doing. We've got to remember to wake up. And this expression to wake up is common to Paul. Um, he uses it a number of times. Listen to this in Ephesians 5. He says, At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed to the light, it becomes visible. 
For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine in you. Now, that may sound like a call to salvation, but he's speaking to the church. He's telling the church, wake up, and Christ will shine in you. What he's saying is, if you're spiritually asleep, if if you've hit the snooze button a number of times, then Jesus isn't going to be shining through you very much. When people look at you, they're not going to see the light and the glory of Christ. They're just going to see you. And so he's telling them, you're children of light, walk in the light, wake up, and Christ is going to shine in you. Or in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 to 8, a very similar statement. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. So what does Paul mean by awake? He means being sober-minded. He means being focused. He means being alert, morally, spiritually, not being lethargic and inattentive, but awake, just like those few seconds after you caught yourself dozing driving the car and you're, you're focused. You almost drove off the road and you don't want to do that again. That's what Paul is calling us to. In 1 John chapter 3, verses 2 to 4, he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has yet to appear. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. The the result of this hope of Jesus returning, this result of the transformation in us that will occur when he arrives, is supposed to spur us on to holiness. Which brings us to our next point. What we need to remember, first, we live in an age and a time where of all times we need to be alert. Secondly, the return of the Lord is at hand. The return of the Lord is at hand. Now, I know that recently there have been some people trying to predict with great specificity when Jesus will return to total failure. And so there can be a temptation in us to say, I don't want to be foolish like that, which I'd I'd encourage you, don't be foolish like that. Um, No one knows the day or the hour, and if anyone says they do, they're wrong. Um, but the danger is to sort of so overcompensate this way that you know what I'm not even going to worry about this when Jesus comes back stuff I mean after all generation after generation after generation of Christians have thought it's our generation and they were wrong so you know I don't want to be foolish I don't want to be wrong so I'm just not going to worry about it too much and the problem is that is completely the opposite tone that the Bible calls us to have Paul didn't know when Jesus was coming back, but it's clear that Paul thought it entirely possible it would be within his own lifetime. Listen to some of these passages. Listen to some of these passages speaking of of Paul's expectation. Philippians 4, 4 to 5. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Or James 5, 7 to 9, encouraging persecuted Christians to hang in there just a little longer. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. The judge is at the door. Now, I know it's 2,000 years after James wrote that. There's two possible conclusions. (laughs) James didn't know what he was talking about, which must then mean the Holy Spirit didn't. Yeah, you don't want to go there. Or it's 2,000 years closer. I mean, if he was at the door 2,000 years ago, I mean, that thing's cracking open now which I think is the right attitude. Or think of Revelation 20, 20 to 21. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all, amen. The Lord is at hand. 
And Paul says it this way, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And it's nearer now than it was 2,000 years ago. And it'll be nearer this afternoon than it was this morning. The New Testament mentality is that every day longer that we live, our expectations should grow, not diminish. Grow. That we should become more excited, more enthusiastic. A word about this notion of our salvation is nearer. The Bible can talk about our salvation in a past and a present and a the future aspect, and that's because the gospel, the salvation that we have, involves all aspects. Jesus did not just come to save you from the penalty of sin, which is what he did at the cross. When you became a Christian, you were forgiven. Your, your sins were no longer reckoned to you. You were declared righteous in Christ legally. That happened in the past. You were saved But the Bible can just as equally talk about your being saved now. In Philippians 2, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Well, that's because the package that Christ purchased, the new covenant of his blood, not only includes the forgiveness of sins, but includes the power to transform and overcome sin in this life, what we call sanctification. So we've got justification. You're declared righteous in Christ, you're forgiven, you're brought into God's family. That's a point in time. It happened, hopefully, in your past. It's not repeated. Then there's sanctification, where you're progressively conformed to the image of his son. You're progressively growing in holiness. And that's a process that'll begin at your conversion and end at the Lord's return or your death. And then there's glorification which is when, in an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be conformed to his image. Go back to Romans 8. Go back to Romans 8, where Paul talks about this. We were there just a month or two ago. And he says, in verse 29, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might become the firstborn among many brothers. God has determined for each and every one of us who know his son that he will not rest. He will not cease. He will move heaven and earth to make you perfectly conformed to the image of his son. And he wants that to start now and he will finish it perfectly when you see the Lord face to face. That is our great hope. That is the reason to be awake. Because that day when we will see him and be like him, we won't be God, but we'll be holy. We'll be sinless like him. Is closer now than when we first believed. And that should elevate an ever-increasing joy and excitement within us. Let me give you a text to show this picture, Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, puts these two concepts together of holiness and excitement and focusing on the Lord's return. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. So there's the emphasis on holiness. We gotta think about, we gotta plan, we gotta purpose to stir each other up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So every day that Jesus' return gets nearer, we should be doing this more and more, getting more excited, not less. More excited, not less. Or 1 Peter 1.13, therefore preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. See, your hope shouldn't be in your vacation next year. Your hope shouldn't be in in your favorite team winning the World Series. Your hope is in Christ. And, And Peter tells us, put it all there, all the chips in one basket. All of our hope fully placed in the grace to be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I don't think we can emphasize this too much. We can't overstate how focused, excited, expectant, Hopeful, we are in the return of the Lord. The, the biblical texts just put it at the highest level. Or 1 Peter 4, 7 to 8. 
The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded for the sake of your prayers, and above all, keep loving one another earnestly. You see how this is put together? Here's our eschatological hope. And it's put before us as something to make us excited, something to make us zealous, something to wake us up from our snoozing in our Christian life. It should just get your heart beating. If this doesn't excite you, then your exciter's broken. (laughs) No, really. If this doesn't excite you, then I I really have to ask what you think's gonna happen when the Lord returns. Because we're gonna be done with sin, and we're gonna be done with pain, and we're gonna be done with death, and we're gonna be done with our sinfulness, and we're gonna be done with seeing dimly through a mirror, and we're gonna be done with being separated from the one we most love. And we will know just as we are known and we will see clearly face to face and we'll be transformed into his image and we'll be with the Lord and we'll be with his people. That, that, that is a glorious picture and anything this world has to offer pales in comparison. In fact, in Romans 8, back in Romans 8, Paul says in verse 18, I consider the suffering of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to reveal to us. Let me say that again. The Nero persecutions, which were taking place around this time. And if you don't know what took place, then I won't say it because it's awful, but you can look it up. The Neronian persecutions that were taking place are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Do you see what I'm saying? That you can't overstate this. You can't overemphasize this. The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Creation's eager, are you? Creation's expectant, looking for it. And Paul's saying the challenge is, are we, or are we sleepy? Are we, you know, it'd be nice when Jesus comes back, but hopefully not before I go to Disneyland. Lord, come back soon, but not too soon. You know, can sort of be our mentality. Um, And that's just, You don't find that in the Bible. You don't find that in the Bible at all. We're called to wake up. And so before we turn to our next point, I just want to stop and challenge some of us here that perhaps this might be a wake-up call. If you have a half-hearted, lukewarm Christian walk, and you're thinking, someday in the future, I'm going to take things seriously. Someday in the future, I'm going to get excited and zealous. But right now, I'm taking a breather. I would plead with you. Don't, don't make that mistake. Don't be that servant. And, and I don't want to guilt you into it. And I don't want to you know, be strong. I want to put something in front of your face, something, something in front of your eyes that is so glorious and so exciting and so wonderful that everything else just fades away. What's the, what's the words from that? Him turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of this world will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Don't, don't put off holiness till next year, next month. Now is the hour and the time to wake up. Our salvation is nearer now when we first believed. The night is almost over. The day is at hand. And Paul doesn't just leave us there. He, he, now he's gonna turn to how to live in light of this hope. So he's, he's reminded us of these things that we should know. He's reminding us of these things that should be on our minds constantly. He's reminded us that now is the time to be awake, to be vigilant, to be sober, to be excited and zealous. And then if you're like me and you kind of need to do that, because I'll tell you, it was was a difficult study this week and convicting. Paul tells us how to do that. Tells us how to live this. What does that look like? If you're sitting here going, that sounds great, what do I do? He tells us what to do. And, and before we go much further, I've got to pause and explain a little bit about Pauline theology and how change happens in the Christian life. Because Paul is going to utilize a, a, a process, a mechanism, a, a paradigm of change that he uses elsewhere as well. And if you see those three arrows in that little box in your notes, and those of you who are in the instruments in the Redeemer's hands will find that very familiar. Um, Pretty much anyone who's spent much time with me will find those little three arrows familiar. The arrows are for put off, 
put on, renew. Put off, put on, renew. Turning your Bibles to Ephesians 4. I just want to show you this clearly, and then we'll jump back to Romans and unpack it. Ephesians 4. And this is, again, the same pattern, three chapters of doctrine, three chapters of truth, three chapters of this is what God has done, leads to this is how you ought to live. So in Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened to their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They've become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupted through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And then Paul gives some specific applications. Therefore, having put away falsehood, that's the put off, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. That's the put on. Verse 26, do not be angry and do not be angry, do not sin, put off. Do not let the sun go down in your anger, Put off. Give the devil no opportunity. Put off. Let the thief no longer steal. Rather, let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. So there's a put off. The thief needs to stop stealing. What he needs to put on is honest, hard work and generosity. And if you keep reading through Ephesians 4, that same pattern emerges. Now, now go back to Romans 13. It's the exact same pattern. And the reason this is important and I thought worth pausing here is, is this. A lot of times I think Christians are frustrated in their attempts to change, attempts to grow, because they're only working at one or two of these axes. Sometimes we're just so focused with the sin that's entangling us, so focused with the thing that we're caught up in, that we never stop to think, what should I be running to? I mean, you, you can see the absurdity of this in the person who's obsessed with not worrying. And all they do is get worried about not worrying. I need to stop worrying. And oh, oh, good grief, I'm starting to worry again. And if you don't have anything for them to do instead, they're just going to be like a dog chasing their tail. If the person who's a thief is just worried about not stealing and just putting his hands in his pockets when he goes in the store, that's great. But until he learns to work hard and to be generous, he really hasn't changed. You know, we ask, when does a liar stop being a liar? And it's not when he stops lying. It's so when he learns to speak the truth. When is a thief no longer a thief? Not when he stops stealing, but when he becomes a hard-working, generous person. So you've got to put off the old man. You've got to put on the new man. And what Paul's going to give us in the rest of our passage are three couplets, six points, a put off, a put on, a put on, a put off, and a put on and a put off. And they help explain each other. The renew was back in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And what that speaks to is basic Christian holiness and disciplines. This isn't a, this isn't a technique you can take out in the world, put off, put on. Because without connection to Christ, without soaking your mind in his word, without being united with him in prayer and his body, there's going to be no power. Just like a branch cut from a tree isn't going to produce any fruit. So an attempt to put off and put on apart from fellowship and communion with Christ and his people and his word is useless. So the renewing of your mind is important. And that's another thing we can get distracted with. We're so focused on a particular sin that we neglect prayer, Bible reading, fellowship, the people of God. This is a package deal. All the spokes on this wheel need to be active if we're changing, if we're growing. But if we are in his word, if we are gathering with his people, if we are using our gifts and serving and being served, and if we are focusing on putting off those sins and aggressively putting on the new behavior, we're gonna change. The spirit is gonna transform us. This is how, 12.2, we're transformed by the renewal of our minds. So let's quickly look at these three couplets. 
First he says in the rest of verse 12, cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. So there's the put off and the put on. And they help inform each other. What do we mean by works of darkness? Well, the actions, the deeds, the words, the mentalities that fit with this current evil age. See, the world's divided into darkness and light. This is a common biblical theme. In John 3, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men hated the light and loved the darkness because their deeds were evil. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Or Jesus, I am the light of the world, right? This is a common biblical theme. Light refers to what is holy, what is good, what is true. Darkness refers to this present age and the mentality and the mindset of that. Listen to 1 John chapter 1, verses 5 and 7. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light. and In him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk in the darkness, we lie. Do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. So put off the works of darkness. Are there areas in your life that you know have nothing to do with Christianity, that have nothing to do with the way God wants you to live, that's just the way your friends act, it's just the way the world does things? Cast them from you like a garment. Like you would take off a soiled garment, cast it from you, and put on the armor of light. The armor of light. Isn't that, isn't that a wonderful picture? And now we're back to the soldier metaphor again. You see, after the cross, after the victory, but before the consummation, he has not left us here orphans. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his word. He has given us his armor. We're those soldiers in the Philippines, in those island battles, who have state-of-the-art weapons, state-of-the-art armor. We've been given the best tools. We should put them on. We should actively put them on. Stop walking in darkness, put them on. And what we get here is it's an either-or. You can't do both. You're either walking in darkness, carrying out the deeds of darkness, and that's going to stop you from putting on the armor of light. Or you've got the armor of light on, and it's protecting you from walking in darkness. It's like the old saying, sin will keep you from this book, or this book will keep you from sin. What's the armor of light? It's the same armor that Paul has talked about in Ephesians. We don't, we don't have time to go there to Ephesians 6. But there he talks about putting on the full armor of God. The breastplate of righteousness, the helm of salvation, the belt of truth, the feet shod with the gospel of peace, the shield of faith, the sword of the spirit. We need to actively be putting those things on. If you're casting from you the works of darkness, amen. Equally, be focusing on putting on the armor of light. And you'll be changing, you'll be transformed into his image more and more. The next couplet, put on walking in the light, put off walking in the darkness. So let us walk properly as in the day, he says, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and envy. So walk in the light. Walk as in the daylight. We are children of light. We should walk that way. So previously, stop walking in darkness. Stop doing the deeds and the works of darkness. Now, walk in the light. What does that mean? Well, in 1 John, as we just heard, it means having fellowship with one another. Do you have many Christian friends? Do you get together with them throughout the week? Or are your best friends unbelievers? What type of fellowship do you have with God and his word? Walking is a metaphor for conducting your life. Back when the Bible was written, they didn't have cars or automobiles, so most people who couldn't afford horses or donkeys walked to and fro. So throughout the day, you were walking, and walking became this picture of your daily life. So as you walk about in your daily life, walk in light. And then to help us understand, well, what does that mean? He tells us what not to do. Well, don't walk in darkness. Some of your translations have orgies here as the first word, which is not a terribly good translation. It's a word for excessive feasting. And these come in couplets. So not in excessive feasting, not in drunkenness. 
There's the first coupling. That's not what we should be doing. If you want to know what walking in light is, it means not partying and drinking. Secondly, not in immorality and sensuality. What does it mean to walk in light? It means casting off drunkenness, casting off partying, and now casting off fornication, casting off sexual sin. Sensuality just means unbridled lack of self-discipline. No ability to restrain yourself. Cast, cast that off. Don't do that. That's not befitting of who we are, who Christ has made us to be. That doesn't comport with our new nature. That's the type of thing sleepy people do. It's the type of thing unbelievers do. It's not what children of light should be doing. You've got to put off walking in the darkness. And finally, to culminate this whole thing, and, and these couplets are pretty much saying all the same thing. It's just different ways of saying it. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. So here's the third, put off and put on. And put on the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, isn't that a wonderful, a wonderful concept? Isn't it wonderful to know that you can put on Jesus? You can clothe yourself in Jesus. You can be wrapped and covered with Jesus for all the world to see. Or you can make provision for sin. Those are your options. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put off provision for sin. And this is, again, one of those be what God has called you to be statements. In Galatians 3, 27, we read, as many as of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If you're a Christian, then in some sense, you've already put on Christ. And now Paul is saying, live like it. When you became a Christian, you put on Jesus Christ. And every day when you get up out of bed, you got to put him on again and again and again. Not because you're getting saved again and again and again. But because our sinful desire, our flesh will run back to our old slave master called sin, even though we're freed and we'll do its bidding. And we got to get up and we got to remind ourselves I've been bought. I no longer belong to the darkness. That's not who I am anymore. That's who I was. It's not who I am. I'm purchased and bought by Jesus. I'm his. He is mine. And you put him on. You wrap yourself in him. You, you live with Jesus shining through. In Acts 11.26, it's the first time believers are referred to as Christians. It was a negative term called them by their enemies. It just means little Christs. But isn't it a wonderful thing that the term of derision, the term to mock the people of God, was that they're little Christs. Doesn't that tell you an awful lot about the lives they were living, about the way they conducted themselves, that their enemies said, ha ha, you're just like Jesus. It wouldn't be wonderful if that's the way our enemies made fun of us. Jesus can shine through you. Remember, arise and awake, O sleeper, and Christ will shine in you. He can shine through you. You can be the best picture that the world is going to see of Jesus until they see him face to face. And Paul's calling us to do that. He's not calling us to do this in our own power. He's not calling us to just grit our teeth and get self-disciplined. He's calling us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He's calling us to trust in his grace, get in his word, be in prayer with him. Ask the Holy Spirit for help in this. But the enemy of this, the put off on the other side is provision for sin. See, this is only gonna happen when we've cut all ties with sin. The danger here is that we, we have certain pet sins that we sort of play with. And every now and then we try to show it who's boss, but we don't really wanna cut it off. We don't really want to cast it from us. We just wanna keep it under control. It's a small problem. It's my one weakness, that, that type of mentality. And we plan for it. We allow for it. Give, give me an example. If you have a struggle with alcohol, if alcohol has in the past mastered you, then you are making provision for sin if you knowingly keep you know, a bottle of vodka in the cabinet just in case company comes over and wants some. You're not casting sin from you. It's a different story if that isn't something you struggle with. If, if, if you struggle with something, 
Cast it from you. Don't make provision for sin. Don't leave opportunities. The, the best example I can think of was a pastor. I think it was Joe Stoll gave this illustration. I think he, it was him. He said that when he goes on speaking engagements, he refuses to stay at hotels that will not completely eliminate pay-per-view. And his mentality is this. I want to make no provision for temptation. He goes, I haven't struggled with that, but I don't want to presume that some night far from home, homesick at three in the morning, unable to sleep, I might not be tempted and weak. So he said, a wise man makes a decision long before he has to make a decision. No provision for sin. Don't leave the door slightly cracked open so that if perhaps maybe you can go back to it. Burn your bridges with sin. Turn your back on it. That's the mentality we have to have if we want to be people who have Jesus shining through us. That's the cost. That's the put off and the put on. If you're still playing with sin, if you're still petting sin, if you're still trying to keep it under control, don't be surprised that you don't look an awful lot like Jesus. You gotta gotta cast that from you. You gotta put on the Lord. But what a glorious picture that is that we can shine forth the glory of Jesus. That's God's desire for us. He wants to conform us into his image and if you'll let him, if you'll cooperate, if you'll with your will by faith engage this, it'll happen. And maybe some of your enemies can say, you look an awful lot like Jesus. And what a wonderful thing that would be. And all of this is fueled by our hope and our confidence and our joy in the return of the Lord. Because this process that we're engaging in, becoming more like Jesus, is going to be finished soon. It's going to be finished soon. It's going to be completed, and you will be like him, and you will see him. And he will appear in the clouds to gather his people. Your eschatology should drive holiness, not fighting. For so many people, studying eschatology leads to bickering and quarreling. And, and, and I'm not saying that the Bible's not clear on eschatology. It is. But first and foremost, eschatology is supposed to drive holiness. Our study of the return of the Lord is supposed to drive our zeal and desire and passion and excitement and enthusiasm of his soon coming. So that we can cry out with the Apostle Paul, come quickly, Lord Jesus, Maranatha. Let's close in prayer. Lord God, we just pray that you would help us to keep this vision, this excitement, this passion for the appearing of your Son in our minds, that we would obey what Peter writes, that we would place our hope completely and fully in the grace to be brought about at the revelation of your Son. Lord, don't let us get distracted. Don't let us get sleepy. Don't let us fall asleep and drift away. Let us be sober and vigilant, walking in the light. Let the world see your son growing in us. Help us to put off the works of darkness and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. God bless you.